0: Good morning. We've been studying the speeches recorded in the book of Acts. So far in the speeches that we looked at, the audiences have been located in Jerusalem. And in chapter seven, we began looking at that last week. The audience changes. Stephen ends up being a pivotal figure and the first martyr. The martyrdom of Stephen causes Jewish Christians to be forced to relocate from Jerusalem into other parts of Israel and ultimately Mark's form an empire. Um, just prior to being martyred, he <laughs> delivers a lengthy defense before what was the Supreme Court of the first century Israel. And in this lengthy defense, when they ask him to respond to the charges against him, that he spoke against the law and against the temple. Stephen, again, launches a lengthy speech in his own behalf. And there are two themes. We looked at the first last week, divine faithfulness. And we'll look at the second this week, human faithlessness. We looked at divine faithfulness, God being true to his promises. And we looked last week that Stephen called several witnesses from Scripture to attest to God's faithfulness, Abraham, Joseph, and Moses called as witnesses. God looked upon the oppression of the Israelites and others at the time and delivered them through these individuals. But that leads Stephen to his second focus, which is human faithlessness. And in the context, what it means, Stephen accuses the Israelites, of regularly rejecting God's deliverers. God saw oppression and and pain, sent a deliverer, and Stephen records the numerous times that these representatives were rejected by the Israelites, and Moses is a case in point. We pick up the narrative in Acts chapter 7, verse 35. (coughs) Stephen is is saying, This is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea, and for 40 years in the desert. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. Moses and Jesus have several things in common. They performed signs and miracles for the people. And these these miracles testified to their being God's spokesperson and representative, God's ruler and judge. And another thing that unites both of them, they were rejected as such. Stephen goes on in verse 39 But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. That was the time they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifices to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. But God turned away and gave them over to the worship of the heavenly bodies. This agrees with what is written in the Book of the Prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Molech and the star of your God, Rephan, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. We find a pattern in the Bible. We've talked about it before. Tune out, tune in, turn from. We find that there were times when Israel turned to idolatry, but it didn't just happen right away. There's a process. There's It moves from tuning out, tuning God out, tuning in, tuning in those who claim to speak for God but don't do so, and then turning from. To reject God's messenger, Stephen points out, is to reject God, to tune God out. When somebody tunes out God's representative, they tune in those who claim to speak for God, but don't do so. The result is tragic, turning from God. And and that's why it's important to tune God in, to seek to understand what he says, to be guided by what he says. That puts us in a safer place so that we don't assume that thoughts that are not true of God We we don't entertain them. And in not entertaining them, we don't turn from him. Stephen observes, though, for those he's talking to, that God gave them over to their own desires, to idolatry. When we think of idolatry, it really comes in two different forms. When we treat not gods as God, or we treat God in a way that doesn't honor him as such. Um, In verse 44, Stephen talks about how idolatry manifested itself in the Israelites in history, uh, not just through the worship of gods like Molech and Rephan, but the way they treated God. They didn't treat him as God, is what he says in verse 44. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of the testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses, according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favor and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? The tabernacle was what the Israelites were commanded to create in the wilderness when they were moving from Egypt into the Promised Land. It was a movable tent. And this portable tent fit a pilgrim people on the move, a people not tied down to a land or place, so they could uproot this movable temple, this tent, and move it from place to place. And, And that's the way God accompanied his people. They were pilgrim people. The temple was to be a house for Israel, not for God, a place for Israel to express their devotion to God. Stephen suggests that over time, the tabernacle, and when it became a fixed building, when Solomon built it, it started to become something else. When a place of worship Becomes a representation for God Himself, it becomes a substitute for God. What ends up happening? We end up worshiping the building rather than worshiping the God, because God can't really live in a building. He creates everything. The man made house is worshiped, Stephen points out, not the living God. And that's idolatry. When we act as if God lives, in a church. You know, we talk about the church being God's house, and I think we understand what we mean by that. It's a place where we worship and honor God, but certainly it's not a place where God lives. God doesn't live in the buildings we create for them. He created everything. God cannot be confined to one place or one people, and it's dangerous to wrap God in anyone's flag. Tragically, Stephen's contemporaries, those he was talking to, didn't listen. The temple in first-century Jerusalem became a hotbed for Jewish nationalism, a place where they said, God's going to protect us, we can overthrow any human government, and God will protect us because we have the temple here. The temple was the place where revolutionary movements began in the first century. Eventually, this led to war with the Romans. And Jesus, when he approached Jerusalem, he understood that this would happen. And that's why he sobbed on Palm Sunday when he entered, because he knew what was going to happen in the future and what did happen. The Romans attacked and they reduced the temple to rubble. Not one stone. Was left on one another. Stephen concludes his speech by pointedly accusing his hearers of faithlessness. Here's what he says in verse 51. You stiff necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Stephen accuses these Supreme Court justices and the people who were there gathered listening to this speech of being faithless. Moses, Joseph, and the prophets are all types of and pointers to Christ. And Stephen pointed out that they had already killed him. They were the guilty parties all as well in turning the temple into an object for human manipulation. And they distorted its true purpose as a place for prayer and worship. And we're going to look at how this court this, how this defense ends, and it's not going to end well. Um, let's notice one thing, though. We've noticed this before. When it's in verse 53, it has something that we've noticed before. It says, you who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When you read through the Old Testament, and you understand and read about what happened on Mount Sinai, you never hear angels talking from Mount Sinai. It's God. That's the way the, the the text declares. Now, it declares in some places that the angel accompanied them on the journey, but it seems to indicate that that it was God who spoke to Moses. But what we find here is that we find something different in the New Testament, it's found here in the New Testament, and from the lips of someone listening to Stephen, that that Moses received the law through the mediation of angels. That that actually angels were speaking as God's representatives. Uh, there's an individual who is in the crowd. Saul. He was a Pharisee, and we know him as Paul. Now, this was before he became the Apostle Paul. He apparently heard. What Stephen declared here, because listen to what Paul says in Galatians 3:19, when he then on the far side of his conversion, he says this, what then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. Um, again, Paul says the same thing that Stephen did. The old covenant was given through angels through Moses, it was kind of the the copy of a copy, God communicating to angels, angels commuting to Moses, Moses communicating to people. And it's like a reproduction where it's not the same thing as hearing directly. And that's what Stephen and what Paul and what New Testament writers declare, that with Jesus. It's God himself speaking directly to mankind. Um, the image of angelic messengers, by the way, if, if you saw the tabernacle and what it was like, it had, it was a portable tent, and it had images both on the tent itself and in the interior structures. The image of angels... Emblazoned and adorned the tabernacle. On the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies, there is the image of an angel, the centerpiece of uh, Judaism. In 586 BC, the Ark of the Covenant, that part which dwelt in the holiest place within this movable tabernacle, was lost. We don't know where it went it was it was lost in the babylonian captivity and the centerpiece of judaism vanished so when um, the temple was reconstructed in the 1st century bc it didn't have the ark of the covenant inside that had been lost god then no longer lived inside so when you think about it when god moved out of and was not in the holy of holy place, the Ark of the Covenant with the with the tablets and the different things that was not there. Uh, what do you have when God moves out of the box? What you have are the images of angels. God's not there. Only angels are there. And Paul almost seems that to, he is encouraging those in his time, don't worship angels. There is—God doesn't speak directly to us out of the Old Covenant. Now, it was, but God speaks to us clearly in the New Covenant. Uh, keeping the commandments in order to connect with God, then, is really worshiping angels. God doesn't live or think or judge by the Old Covenant now. The Old Covenant was replaced by the New. God moved into a different tabernacle. And this is what it says in John 1, 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, when it says God made His dwelling, literally that means God tabernacled. So here's what happened. God moved out of the old tabernacle and into His Son. And... Um, He will never leave there. If we found the Ark of the Covenant, it would be empty. Back to what happens to Stephen when he's speaking to them. This is not going to turn out well. They explode in fury. In verse 54, when they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said. I see heaven opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. We know him as Paul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul was there giving approval to his death. Stephen's rebuke infuriated the Sanhedrin. His vision of Jesus infuriated more. He saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. We hear elsewhere of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. They try to figure out, why is he standing? And it could mean one of two things. It could be reflecting or representing he's standing, this is a really neat picture, waiting to receive Stephen. And it might be that, or it also might be that he is standing as judge. It talks in Daniel about the Son of Man will function as judge. If so, Stephen's vision shows Christ ready to render judgment on the accusers. Not Stephen isn't the guilty party. Those who are stoning him, they are the guilty party. And they did stone Stephen to death. An angry mob, they pelted him with stones. So here we have, and just to tie this up, we have a combination of divine faithfulness and human faithlessness. And what's interesting, even though these individuals were doing things, they stoned Stephen, they killed Jesus, even though they are faithless, God is still accomplishing his purpose. Here's what he promised <coughs> to do through Israel, and again to close us, just a couple of verses. To Abraham, here's what God said, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What he promises. To the Israelites is that every nation on earth would be blessed through them. And what what Paul ended up understanding is even the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, that was God's doing. Here's what it says in Romans 11.25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full numbers of the Gentiles has come in. Here's what happened. If all Israel had received and put their faith in Christ, Jews never would have been forced to depart from Jerusalem into Israel. They never would have been forced to depart from Israel into the Roman Empire if they had accepted and understood who Jesus was we would not have had the opportunity to hear. So even in the midst of human faithlessness, God is being faithful to keep His promises. He said to Abraham, every nation on the earth is going to be blessed through you. And even God causes that to occur and uses human faithlessness as a means of expressing divine faithfulness. Paul ends up saying this way, quoting from, if we are faithless, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. In the end, God's faithfulness always trumps human faithlessness. We're grateful for that. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your bigness. You're never put in a corner by what we do. We don't always understand your purposes, but you are accomplishing them. Purposes that are good. Thank you for your good purposes and your good promises. In the midst of difficulties, when we don't understand what's happening, even when we look around and see individuals who don't walk with you, and it concerns us, it frightens us, at the end, when the dust clears, You will accomplish good things, and you would have us trust you. Would you help us to do that as we walk through times of illness and physical instability and financial instability and emotional instability? You will accomplish good purposes in the end, and we can trust that. Thanks for walking with us. Thank you that Jesus is our good shepherd, and we don't walk alone. In his name, amen.